0: Yep, we're rolling. We're rocking and rolling. Love that for us. Another classic news episode. Sean and Andy trying to do these, what, once, twice a month maybe?
1: As long as there's news. If there's no news, there's what been are we going to talk about?
0: Yeah, typically there's been a real lack of news over the last year or so, but I think we have some things we can glom onto today. Here's some hot news coming down the pipe. I got ratioed the other day. Or they attempted to ratio oh, me. Oh,
1: the mob is after you. The, the mob. mob. I was a, It was an
0: attempted cancellation. <laughs> I, I said uh, I said such woke things as pollution is good. EPA A C A B includes the Environmental now, why Protection don't we Agency. Say <laughs>
1: actually what you said.
0: What did I actually say? Because
1: people, you can't assume everyone read Twitter. No,
0: or, of course. Drama. It's funny because Andy will read this thread, and uh, I, I I when I started getting pushback from it, I texted Andy. I'm like, bro. I'm starting to get I'm starting to get a lot of pushback here. What should I do? Should I delete it? Should I just like mute it or whatever? And and he's like, "No. Keep it up. People will quote tweet it and they will hear the truth." I said, "Okay." But boy, my mentions were wrecked and ruined. I'm not even a fucking bomb thrower anymore on Twitter. I don't like blow people's spot up. I was just upset because um There's been a variety of events lately that have conspired to re-legitimate like a dying shitty American politics,
1: world politics, really. So in the tweet you say, Making a fetish object of U.S. Capitol's feckless, faltering administrative state isn't going to do us any favors. There's no solutions to America's problems or the world's absent the realization of our class power. The American state and American society are not going backwards per se. They are becoming something new a new terrain of exploitation and domination, accumulation and resistance, rear guard attempts to save a system that is already Failing on its own terms is a waste of time. See, Was so far, EPA, so good
0: there. So far, so good. I didn't get uh-huh. a lot of pushback. All my good friends and mutuals out there were like, right on, dude. That sounds
1: great. Yeah. Ooh. And then what did I say? Yeah. That, so that one has 25 retweets. Next tweet. <laughs> Was the EPA really going to save the planet? Do we really believe that? The state is riven by the same intraclass capitalist rivalries that gave birth to it and necessitate it. It's beating heart is the same expanded accumulation that's wrecking the world in the first place. And that one has 354 (laughs) quote tweets, 31 retweets. I don't think they ever got
0: me on the ratio, though. I think I still have more likes to retweets, though.
1: Well, the the quote quote tweet to tweet. Is where they got you. And it's mostly I haven't checked it in a bit, but it's mostly people saying like, oh, you don't like the EPA. Yeah. You want the rivers to be on fire right. and the uh, air to be
0: unbreathable. There was a lot of like uh, quote tweets that were just like the picture of Love Canal or like that famous burning uh, river in Erie. Was it Pennsylvania? That, uh, you know, from the 1970s, like, is this what you want? You want to go back to acid rain? Why do you hate the environment? La la, stupid anarchists. Or but whatever. what you
1: say is, was the EPA really going to save the planet? And I put save
0: the planet in quote tweets, too. And in I, I, in, in I, I quotes, mean, rather.
1: I think there are some people, environmentalists, who, who still believe that if every country, you know, uh, uh, curbs their carbon emissions to a certain extent... That we can reduce the damage of climate change, and that is certainly true. But that is not what is happening, and that is not what is going to happen. And in a way, it's better we drop the facade of it so we can look yeah. realistically at what we're facing, which is not capitalism. Uh, you know, unilaterally deciding to slow down right. for the the greater good of humanity, but capitalism running full speed off the cliff. Exactly, like with a t- with us tied to it essentially. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, like I put um Save the Planet in scare quotes because of exactly what you're talking about. You know, I'm I'm kinda of malm pilled on this. You listen to the the episode on climate change uh that Varn and I did in Fossil Capital mm-hmm. and he makes a very persuasive case, Mal um, Andreas Malman in, uh, in Fossil Capital, that there's um that if you like, If you look at the way that capital accumulation works and you look at the two, 300-year history of the use of fossil fuels along with accumulation, the two are inextricable. And if you're going to have sort of like national-based uh, administrative state plans in order to do, say, like carbon tax credits or you're going to have like a crash towards like green capitalism or whatever, you're always going to run into – um, the collective action prob, uh, problem, which is that various different capitals in various different states are constantly using sources of cheap energy, sources of cheap labor. Capital is always moving itself around, and and uh, capitalist countries are getting competitive advantage, you know, by using, say, coal, you know, over more expensive green technologies. So, like, built into capitalism, built into like, you know, uh, MCM Prime is also fossil fuels at the same time so yeah like you said the the epa for all the great work it's done and people were completely um you know straw manning my argument uh the epa for all the good work it's done on the air and acid rain and uh, clean water and things of that sort woefully insufficient <laughs> to the task at hand and um yeah and so i i think that the a lot of the responses to that were cope I think a lot of people, even on the you know the liberal left, understand that and recognize that to a certain extent, but they're trying hard to hold on to these sort of technocratic market-based solutions because they don't want to see private property relations upended. They don't want to see, God forbid, they see a new mode of production arise, right? It's very much like a sort of middle-class politics that's trying to combat climate change by not affecting property relations or class power at all.
1: And this... Hollowing out of the the bureaucracy has been uh, in the works for a long time, and it makes sense that a lot of people thought it couldn't happen or it shouldn't happen because it's hard to imagine things getting so much worse. Like even with the little the EPA was doing, and how much more it had to do, the idea that it's just going to be more or less gone or ineffective in a, a few periods of time, a few years time, and um, you know the the Supreme Court will only make things. So much more worse. Trump coming in, you know, yeah. he's going he's gonna to totally hollow, hollow out. He's going to maybe actually drain the swamp this time yeah. and replace them all with, like, alt-right ghouls or, or, or Silicon or, Valley neo-reaction people.
0: Or the governor of Florida, uh, Rick DeSantis, who's actually – who has, has kind of taken up the Trumpist ma- uh, mantle but is actually an af- effective bureaucrat and technocrat, and actually knows how to wield power. He gets into the presidency, and then yeah, you see what Steve Bannon was talking about in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, which is like what he called like a Leninist attack on the on the
1: administrative state, like right. seizing the state apparatus, you know. And, and hey, at the time it, it. was kind of hard to know exactly what he was talking about, but he w- he was actually not being facetious. He he sees the potential of a conservative revolution in this country and he was pushing for it just a little bit too early yeah but it it looks like they're pretty much there
0: he was he, he did it too early. He was like uh, a Svengali figure behind the scenes, a laughable person, right? Like, I mean, the guy's a fucking crank. But, you know, every, every class has its crazy. He's like he represents a certain thrust in like this moribund, shitty, capitalist, uh, bourgeois democracy that we have right now that doesn't see any future in the continuation of this sort of administrative functions of the state that say led to like uh, accumulation from the 1930s to the 1970s sure as fuck doesn't want that and doesn't even want the sort of like, Technocratic, neoliberal, market protecting, market making sort of um, capitalist accumulation that we've seen over the last 50 years. These people see the only way in order for their main constituency, which we're going to talk about in this episode, uh, which is like not just small businesses, um, but also family businesses, small family patriarchal capital. Uh, which is kind of in the driver's seat of the Republican Party right now, that for the for the full flourishing of this like class fraction, they truly want to destroy. They want to go back to the Lochner era. You know what the Lochner yeah. era is? In 1905, there was a famous uh, Supreme Court case, Lochner versus Connecticut, I think it was, and the case was over whether the state of Connecticut could mandate. Uh, maximum hours uh, and a minimum wage for their local bakers because bakers have been working 10-hour days for uh, 60 hours a week. So Connecticut passes this law that says, like, you have to, you know, cut those hours. There has to be some reasonable, like, I don't know, 40-hour work week that that these people can have dictated by the state. Famously, in uh, 1905, the Supreme Court comes down in, like, a kind of um, – Uber uh, laissez faire argument and says that actually there is no right for that within the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution um, upholds freedom of contract over everything else. Um, and so the Lochner Court now, of course, this was overturned in the 1930s uh, under the New Deal and all the sort of back and forth between FDR and the Supreme Court at that time about whether a welfare state you know, was feasible under the Constitution. It turns out, of course, those social democratic forces won. But <laughs> Up until recently, legal scholars have looked back at the Lochner case as like a uh, an absurd act as like this as like this moment of um Supreme Court power that could never come back because it was so utterly absurd on his face that like the Supreme Court can overrule a state legislature on workers rights. Well, now I just read an article in the New York Times today that talks about how they're coming. They're they're trying to bring the Lochner decision back. Mm. They're trying to bring freedom of contract back. Trying to make it so that basically the Supreme Court can start abrogating all sorts of uh, labor regulations in favor of like a truly like laissez-faire gilded age conception of um, yeah private property rights and workers' rights.
1: The courts gonna hear a case cases are coming Along down those the, lines okay
0: yeah they're coming down the pipe right now so this is like this is like a uh, one of these scary things that like the the liberal press will bring up like could you believe they'll bring back the lochner era but similar things are being uh, printed four years ago about, can you, you know, if they get one more, it might be the end of Roe versus Wade. And everyone's been hearing this for 40, 50 years at this point. So me and many other people were like, no way, you know, in a modern society like this, the administrative state for all it's done, you know, in, in terms of regulation also upholds and like, and facilitates capital accumulation on the terms, you know, uh, that it sets. And so to blow that up seems like you're completely undercutting, say, like American dominance over the world with our powerful economy. You're just going to like go back to the to the 19 to the 1890s. Seems crazy. Well, they just did it with Roe versus Wade. So like you said, it's like a concerted project in order to like kick out the underpinnings of what we've understood as what a capitalist state does in the 20th and 21st century.
1: But what do you think is driving it? Is it the desires and anxieties of the petty bourgeois, especially the rural petty bourgeois, who, as capital begins to centralize, their position is made more precarious? Most of them will just not have the stability in, in their their businesses that they once had. And they will be, you know, being pushed downward farther into the working class. And, and so they have this anxiety both at the elites and then at the, you know, the people Beneath them, mm-hmm. the the working class, and and I think that tends to get expressed as fear of uh, Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. the George Floyd uprising and trans resignation and I, yeah, I'm I'm interested in how that plays into it as well. So like this this hatred of like demands for equality coming from the people, like protests, social movements, and stuff, combined with this hatred of the elites, but it leads them running right into the arms of the elites because they've right. convinced themselves that somehow the Republican Party because they have people like Bannon in it or, you know, uh, DeSantis or something, are not with the elites. That's that's the Democrats. Um, but what they're running right into with something like this, with this laissez-faire thing, is not going to benefit them. It's going to benefit the massive corporations who are buying up and homogenizing everything and will crush the petty bourgeoisie. Yeah,
0: I mean, you've. I think you put your finger on, like, the essential contradiction here. I think what you have... I mean, if if I was like a liberal, like, Whig historiographer, or I was, uh, I guess, like a methodological idealist, I would say it goes back to Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian conceptions of American democracy, whether you're going to have a sort of, like, urban, you know, financial tariff-based economy with industry, or you're going to have a rural yeoman's republic of, like, states' rights or whatever, I mean... What what this big debate that you'll hear about uh, Jeffersonian versus Hamiltonian democracy is really like two fractions of the American capitalist class. That you know this has obviously developed a lot over the last two hundred or so years. But even today, there are and we've talked about this on the show. And when I've t- when we've talked about like the left wing versus the right wing of capital, we've talked about like this divide between kind of international, outward looking, cosmopolitan. Uh, big business on the one hand and then like national oriented like extractive capital on the other. we can use this to put I think a little bit of flesh on those bones because there's like there's a long history of this divide between like localism and federalism, and what it often boils down to is um the um sort of different cultural life ways let's call it different sociologies, different patterns of work and consumption and life that come out of um, certain types of accumulation under certain conditions and then other ones, which sounds really, really abstract, but there's a really great article by um, Melinda Cooper that came out in Descent uh, uh, a few months ago that I read. Did you get a chance to read it? I put it in the document. All right, one second, I'm going to... Well, we've got to the part of the podcast where Andy's going to do some poppers. Mm -hmm. This is bound to happen. Yeah, the name of the article, it's from uh, Melinda Cooper in Dissent, uh, is called Family Capitalism and the Small Business Insurrection. The growing militancy of the Republican right is less about an alliance of small business against big business than it is an insurrection of one form of capitalism against another. The private, unincorporated, and family-based versus the corporate publicly traded and shareholder owned so in this article of course she has to go back to the uh the 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 postwar consensus fordism the new deal era uh where big business you know the AT&Ts of the world the kodaks of the world all made their peace uh with the labor regime all made their peace uh with bigness with uh big business and big labor and also the government as the arbitrator between those two but always, of course, there was dissent to this order, and this dissent really starts to build in the 1970s, um, and it comes from very interesting places. It comes from the Chamber of Commerce, which is kind of like this rogue, like capitalist business association, um, founded by one of the uh, the the owners of Amway, which apparently stands for American Way. It's like a very sort of bizarre, interesting multi-level marketing yeah, sort yeah. of like bizarre culty. Something like family organization that like pulls like women a lot of women into it. So the, the
1: Chamber of Commerce was connected with Amway. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was like the same. And, and the order they were pushing back against is this more family petty bourgeois type model of the economy. That's
0: what they were pushing towards. Oh, okay. So okay. what they're so so like the big critiques in the fifties and sixties you get this from the left and the right in the United States it's about big business and big labor, right? And the people – and that was a left critique, but on the right, that critique was coming from, like, smaller petty bourgeois family-owned businesses, but also a kind of growing segment of the economy that wasn't the, – the capital that wasn't publicly traded, that was instead family-oriented, often in the deep south and often in the Midwest, where, like – the alienness of big capital was not because uh, they were like, uh, because they were big and because they accumulated capital, that part was fine. The alienness was like the facelessness of it Mm -hmm. and the corporate sort of bureaucratic aspect of it. Whereas what they saw business as being was to kind of come out organically from like, you know, towns like Mayberry, North Carolina, right? Like um, where uh, families were like um, implicated within the unit of the actual thing mm-hmm. itself, it was family owned where the relations between employer and employee instead of being faceless were instead like uh, familial and gendered and essentially patriarchal
1: and in a way that makes sense because. No matter who you are, it doesn't feel good to be, like, driving around the United States and you just – everything looks like everything else. Mm -hmm. And you stay at a hotel and it's the exact same blueprint of the hotel you stayed in in another part of the city. And you rent an apartment and it's owned by the same conglomeration. You know, in a way, you would rather have uh, a small landlord Mm -hmm. and a small business owner and a place with some character. And so there's obviously – uh, uh, capitalist drives to replicate that like small and uh, you know quirky feeling, which right. is basically what you see in like hipster areas. But even yeah. that's becoming so homogenized. Right. Um, but of course, the problem is not. Just that there's the, these homogenous designs that ha- it's that the small capitalist wants to become a big capitalist. Right. So no matter how much you empower the small capitalists, they're not doing it because they want to make America this like Mayberry utopian aesthetic right. U.S. place. They're doing it because they are care about their own finances and their right. finances of maybe they care about the finances of their family and that's how far they'll go ideologically. And, not- and they love America to the extent. That, that empowers right. their vision.
0: Yes. And, and, and it facilitates their, their uh, accumulation. It's not even that they want to become bigger. It's that, as we know, the forces of competition drive them all to become bigger, right? So it's not even like on the level of conscious. It's that they have other competitors who are knocking at the mm-hmm. gates. They have to make economies of scale in order to compete with them, blah, blah, blah. We all know this whole story. So like, so you have these forces that are kind of knocking at the gates in the 1970s and they start to grow and they start to build and they start to basically become part of... Uh, do you remember Pat Buch- Buchanan who was the Nixon sure. screenwriter or uh, speechwriter mm-hmm. and then he ends up running for president I think in 1992 and he's considered this paleoconservative wingnut. He's considered a white nationalist uh, in many cases um, and he actually is because this this section of 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 capital historically has had connections to white nationalism It has had connections to like anti-immigrant. It has had connections to like Anita Bryant and anti-gay rights stuff all the way back to the 1970s. This is the argument that that she doesn't go as far as to make, but I think is important for our terms, which is that like this particular vision of what capitalism is supposed to look like is a patriarchal one is one where, like, the family business encompasses, as as the family household did up until women had the rights to get to vote and also, like, get loans on their own terms or whatever, this old English version of Coverture, right? It's like, it, 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 it fits smoothly into this sort of... Um, Particular faction of capital accumulation that is driving the Trumps and the DeSantis of the world because it becomes a political project in the 1970s. In the 1980s, it becomes real when um, Ronald Reagan does his massive tax cuts in 1981. Uh, which makes it so that family capitalists actually, there's a lot of benefits to not going public with your company, not having an IPO, not having shareholders. So uh, uh, families like the Koch brothers, like you know these names, the Koch brothers, the Mercer family, and the DeVosses, Right. Become this kind of political spearhead as they get big, as they keep these sort of dynastic, patriarchal corporations, they get bigger and bigger and more
1: powerful. And using libertarianism, right, libertarianism as a cover for expanding their corporate interests. So they can they can not only uh, say like, oh, it just so happens this is good for our company. They could also say this is what America should be, and this is yeah. like the rational economic approach. This
0: is like the the Jeffersonian approach, really. Like that's why it it all it all is away from like big federalism and big government, because what it posits is uh, it posits a lot of things. But one of the things that it does is it posits a an alliance between producers, right within this. So. The sort of blue collar, which more and more starting in the 1980s ends up being like contractors and shit like that, like their own basically pass through corporations Uh, on the one hand, like those sturdy salt of the earth, middle American blue collar Joe, the plumber types on the one hand. And of course, like the Koch brothers, the Mercers, the DeVosses, and the Trumps on the other, those people are actually in a unitary coalition in order to try to keep like their family businesses, what's called small business, right? You hear about the small business revolution of the Tea Party or whatever. That's just as much a family capital revolution, she argues, Melinda Cooper argues, a, a, ter- a certain type of pass-through indiv- like contract or tax relationship to the federal government as much as it is like an actual, um, I don't know, political project. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
1: If you wouldn't mind, let's go back a second to the, this fetishization of the family as like, as the structure of this. Now, of course that's not true. The structure of it is the firm Mm -hmm. is the board. You know, everything is done to maximize the profits of these businesses and the state exists to sustain and improve conditions for that. But the ideology of the family is very helpful in asserting this kind of ideological aesthetic amongst uh, a large section of Americans, especially the section of the middle class where you find these petty bourgeois elements who are either going up or going down and the upper strata of the working class. And this makes up the middle class, and this is why the middle class is such an important political terrain Mm. in the United States, because we live in a country that's pretty unique in the sense that I think over half of Americans own their homes, for example. Um so, and a lot of those people are working class they mm-hmm. own cars um and this was a a way for working class people to really buy into the American project for a long time yep, yeah. and now we're seeing those uh those you could call them wages of whiteness, so that's one way to look at it but the the bond that exists in many ways between the uh the bourgeois and the upper strata of the working class breaking down because there's just less money to be had there's just less jobs to have to be had and those jobs that exist have to get a little bit harder and a little bit cheaper and so as this happens you get a lot more people being pushed down to the lower rungs of the working class being pushed down into the working class from the lower rungs of the bourgeoisie being pushed out of the working class into the underclass and having to subsist and black market existence and life of crime and having to be policed and incarcerated and that sort of thing. And so you get this intensification of something that was always there, but the social compact is breaking down. And as it breaks down, I think that elements of the, of, uh, of of the bourgeoisie and, you know, capital in general is looking for stability as they always are. And they think, well, maybe we can find stability in this traditional vision yeah. of the white male worker and bourgeois hand in hands, you know, helping each other out, scratching sure. each other's backs. Yeah. And so this is where the, this the, this like right wing social revolution, which now they, they found their their dictatorship in the Supreme <laughs> Court yeah. is coming from. Listen, now, yeah, go ahead.
0: All they had to do was they had to turn a Protestant court papist. You know, like there was damn papist, this damn papist. I'm going to start calling it the Catholic Supreme Court. You know, all the trad caths are super hyped right now because they got six of their uh, their people there. So Papist
1: is a sl- You're telling me that Papist is like the slur for Catholics? I'd
0: say, we, yeah, Papist is the slur. But that's
1: not even, a sl- that's not even wrong. It, like, you,
0: it's not. It, it used to be a slur because, like, the whole thing about, say, Al Smith running for governor in 1921 of the state of New York or fucking John F. Kennedy running for president in 1960 was, like, the Papists always take their cues from Rome. Uh-huh. You know, we don't want Roman Papists. Oh, so it's like a yeah.
1: conspiracy conspiracy theory
0: type of thing. It's essentially, It's dual allegiance. It's like they can't be truly American because they have allegiance to, like, you know, America, but also the Pope. So who are they going to listen to?
1: I just think the slur should be something that's a little bit more like, you know, you could call them... Th- slits or something. I guess <laughs> something too slightly hard to vulgar. Say. Yeah. Something slightly vulgar. Cathos.
0: I cathos, I, that's pretty good. If if this podcast is for anything, it's coming up with unique new slurs. If for, we
1: had a better slur, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. That's now, true, okay? yeah. We
0: would have been able to slur Amy Coleman, Comey, whatever the fuck her name is, and uh, <laughs> Amen, J- Coleman, J- Coleman. I almost that's said Jared Alito. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Alito. And uh Clarence Thomas is a Catholic too, I think. I think he's a really? Catholic convert, yeah. I mean, don't quote me on that, but that's I'm pretty brutal. sure he's he's a radical dude. Do you know? Did you ever read Corey Robin on why Clarence? No, Thomas but that's is-
1: really fascinating. That a lot of his ideas come from this sort of black radicalism of the 60s. Yeah. And you, can, in some ways, you can still see that, like in the uh, the gun ruling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that is something that if you were a black radical in the '60s, that's probably a position you would have, is against gun control.
0: He argues against abortion because he rightly—I mean, his his conclusions are wrong, but he rightly points to the eugenic campaigns against black people in the 1920s, right? So he—that's like, a
1: very cynical argument. It's a
0: very, very yeah. cynical argument, but it's one that people should take seriously. Uh-huh. Because like this is a larger point about this. I we I want to continue maybe finish up on the on the family patriarchal uh, patriarchy thing, which I think uh, capital patriarchal capital thinks. I think it ties together a lot of these kind of uh, misconceptions and issues we've had trying to understand what Trumpism is, right? But the question is, why do we care? I mean, we care when I see people throwing terms like fascist around. I always stop because I want to like historicize what's happening, say, on the Supreme Court or what's happening within the Republican Party. Hell, what's happening within the Democratic Party, right? Because we need to understand that these things have deep roots within our own country. In fact, fascism has deep roots inside America, too, with, like, Manifest Destiny and the genocide of indigenous peoples, right? But I think we should understand these conservatives, like, on their own terms because I think all the way up until maybe a couple weeks ago, or a week or so ago, whenever the Roe versus Wade came down, people... Naively, I think, and I'm I'm included in this too, thought that there was like an element of progress that could not be turned around. That there were some crazies out there. That there was the alt right out there. There was the Koch brothers and the Mercers and the Amy Coman Coman bribins or whatever the fuck. And they're just wing nuts. They want to bring us back in time. There is a strain that these people are picking up on, and there is an entire like political economy that they are like arriving, arising out of that if we don't understand that, if we don't understand, like I said in the tweet, these sort of intra capitalist rivalries that exist within this country and the way in which the middle class is brought on board either on the left side of that or the right side and all of us, the working class are just kind of like dragged forward towards the cliff in this entire thing, then I think we're going to misapprehend really important things about what's happening at this moment. Mm -hmm. It's not simply going back in time. You can't literally go back to the Lochner era, right? But what is happening is we have a decentralization of power in this country. It's, It's beginning and it's happening now. Fundamental rights, as they're called in the legal profession, are starting to be taken away. To be brought up by uh, to be picked up by either states or to be in the case of abortion potentially a federal law against all abortions and the banning of that, uh, which isn't something that we've had before in this country. The terrain of struggle is changing and it's on it's mm-hmm. up to all of us to try to understand who the enemy is. Because the enemy isn't simply like the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. They're a certain like expression of that. But what they are
1: really It was nice to think that it was. It because, was like you could get some friends together and learn to fight and, and you, you could, could fight the Proud. Boys. You
0: could beat them, you could fight a Proud Boy one-on-one or five-on-five, right? and you could uh, throw them off the streets, and you could feel like victory was
1: attained. Mm-hmm. And for one more day, we're keeping reaction you know, out. But, but there was a little bit of a, an impulse for anti-fascists to, to look at the Proud Boys and say, these are Nazis, and they are part of this Nazi movement to try to have a Nazi takeover. And in a way, that was true, but another thing that the proud boys were saying and i think this has been more their legacy than their nazi wing uh is that they want to venerate the entrepreneur mm-hmm. that was one of their main slogans back in the gavin McGinnis days mm-hmm. i don't know if they still say that but it's implicit. um they were uh they had this palingenetic view of like a new man like you know the incels rising up mm-hmm. not masturbating anymore um, working out, getting into fights, uh, breaking hearts—you know all Fight this clubbing stuff. their way out of right, uh, supporting each other, yeah. and um, this was very much in line with the kind of energy the Republican Party needed to move in a uh, a different, more radical, more social revolutionary direction,
0: insurrectionary, as we right. saw. Right? I mean, let's uh, not to overplay the January sixth insurrection,
1: and so um, you don't see the Proud Boys. Uh, today, as uh, a bunch of alt right Nazis, like they certainly are amid, amidst the ranks, but it is a a multicultural group of small business owners and people who think that they should be small business right. owners, and that is their base. It's it's not uh, it's not the alt right conspiracy it once was. Right. So so Walmart
0: here's a perfect example of this sort of family capital that Melinda's Cooper, Melinda Cooper Melinda Cooper's is talking about in this article walmart so what's his name sam walton the founder in the 1950s when he looked to the sort of labor relations that he (laughs) intended to create in his big box stores uh he didn't look to mckinsey he didn't look to wall street he didn't look to jc pennies what he looked to was the remnant this the kind of dying remnant of the political economy he saw around him in arkansas a place that had been largely left behind. By a lot of the industrialization and development uh, up into the mid twentieth century, and what he saw and what he based his labor relations on was the small family farm. So who did he hire? He hired primarily older women, women whose kids had you know grown up and left the house uh, widowers. You know, and who did he put in charge of these? He put in charge of them, of course, men. So if you went into an early Walmart, it was like a bunch of men. Some of them, like, could have been these women's sons, like younger men, sort of managerial men on the one hand, and then women underneath them. It reproduces a kind of like an entire world of American society that dies out when the family farm dies. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And when the plantation dies, and when sharecropping dies. So, like, I'm pointing to these, these kind of, these things of the past that we know are kind of wellsprings of conservatism, reaction, also populist democracy as well to show that this sort of family capital arises at a time when other ways of being independent within the economy your family being independent you're the household unit of production which was the family farm where everybody is working together where the mother had the mother's tasks the father had the father's tasks the kids had the kids tasks and maybe the uncle or some immigrant laborers came, laborers came and you hired them for a little bit and they came to work that vision that this this ideal vision of what a uh, capitalist enterprise should be takes its roots in this sort of patriarchal plantation small family farm sharecropping debt relationships that existed all the way up until like the the mid-20th century mm-hmm. and we all know that what comes what goes along with that of course is jim crow slavery and mm-hmm. then jim crow and of course sharecropping itself is a form of, of bondage right it's A lot of the ways in which this politics takes on the particular reactionary hue that it takes on is that it's deeply embedded in this sort of like small town reactionary, small capital gentry sort of um, conservatism Mm -hmm. that we've seen going all the way back to the founding of this country. And now it takes a form where this familial capital enterprise not only can become huge, like the Koch Koch brothers industries, it's like multi, multi, multi billions or the Mercers or the DeVos's right. Uh, Or the Trump family, right. Which is literally like a, it's, it's one man is, is the company, but also now they, they're having political power, not just to like fund the Anita Bryants of the world, trying to push back gay rights in order to quote unquote, protect the family, but now fire directly at the ramparts of the other political economy of this country, which is the Apples, uh, which is the Googles, which is the um, General Motors, which is like... Woke capital. Woke, exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Woke capital, or as they call it, communism, Mm -hmm. right? They will say that that Joe Brandon is a communist, Mm -hmm. that Apple are communists, that woke capitalist Disney is doing this, that, and the other thing. It sounds ridiculous because it fucking is, but they're able to point at the distinction between their kind of understanding of what a small or family business is supposed to be. These sort of like familial type relations, these patriarchal parochial type of relationships versus the faceless, nameless, um, cosmopolitan, outward facing uh, ephemeral economy, not like hard commodity economy. Of, uh, you know, woke capitalists and they're able to plausibly get millions of people all over the country who are like contractors or they're in real estate or they are workers, but they see themselves as more tied to like the extractive industry than they would say like the tech industry. And they're able to turn these people uh, into shock troops for like a wide ranging political project Mm -hmm. that is seeking to basically let loose the productive forces as they understand them that exists in every single human being in this country, who all of us are aspiring little petty bourgeoisie, All the independent contractor thing, the fact that that has opened up so much as a way that so many people are employed in this country, is to make those people... Contract is to make Mm -hmm. those people their own little companies.
1: Or to um, put women, for example, back in their place and say you've exercised a little bit too much autonomy over your life. The idea that women can free themselves from the economic domination of men and of patriarchy in general. But it's become a part of this critique of neoliberalism, this critique of woke capitalism, the idea that by exercising the ability to choose when to have a child, these women are now able to uh, no longer serve men, like no longer be forced to uh, reproduce labor. And Mm. so this was another, you know, part of the petty bourgeois anxiety that like, well, I can't work this guy as hard as I want to because he doesn't have a woman at home cleaning the house.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's like the the women as like this wellspr- wellspring of free reproductive labor. Like it's, it's fascinating, you know, the, the petty bourgeoisie, like the small business owner uh, that them as a class, you know, put aside PMC discourse. But we're talking about the actual like small business owner with either zero or like three or four employees. In the in the Great Depression in the nineteen thirties in a place like New York City, I'm reading uh, Kim Philip Fine's uh, Fear City. One of the ways that New York City becomes like a kind of metropolitan social democracy. With all these subsidies towards the reproduction of the working class, whether that's like city hospitals or city education, city universities, uh, public transportation being super cheap or whatever, is because the petty bourgeois um, small business owners of New York City who are engaged in light manufacturing or retail trade saw a direct interest in having their workforce be reproduced by the state you know, by them being subsidized by the state because it made them cheaper. It took the burden mm-hmm. off of them in order to, you know, uh, like healthcare care or whatever. That's taken care of by the city now. So when you start to see this sort of sem- sem- social democratic coalition fall apart in New York City is when so many of those small business owners who are engaged in production, right, like in one particular place begin to move off into the suburbs mm-hmm. or begin to move down into the south where all of a sudden now it's not so as important that the state in this particular location does it because now you're stretched, your supply lines are stretched all over the place. And that's when you see business start to fall out of line with that entire order of like Fordist sort of Keynesianism. So like the petty bourgeoisie is super important. The petty bourgeoisie of course gets like pulled in different directions from the 1970s, eighties and nineties or whatever. The Clintons talk about small business all the time. Obama talked about mm-hmm. small businesses. The Democrats have their own way of sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, Trying to build on that aspiration as well, but now it feels like, especially not in a place like New York as much, although partially. But it seems like many parts of the country that are kind of the new industrial, like the Sun Belt and stuff like that, the petty bourgeoisie has taken this sort of reactionary, producerist, nationalist turn that has expressed itself in. Trump and America first. So like the petty bourgeoisie as a, a a middling class in between the two has seemed to have put its lot in with big capital at this point. And then you, so here's a direct quote from the article, right? So you wonder where, um, Trump's blue collar shock troops come in, right? The people who were at the Capitol on January 6th, how they come into this because many Mm -hmm. of them are still workers, right? Um, here's a quote, the blue collar producer, And this is within this imaginary of this politics was reimagined as an aspirational small business owner rather than a wage worker, a slippage that helps explain the American rights, strangely capacious understanding of the working class today. The Chamber of Commerce's ideal entrepreneurial form was not simply the small business, but the small family business, whose natural labor hierarchies and personalized property relations stood in contrast to the suspect, to the suspect anonymity of the corporations. You'll hear somebody like Ben Shapiro talk this way. Mm-hmm. He he had a big tweet on uh, on Twitter like a couple of years ago where somebody was uh, talking about uh, why is family so important to these people. And he said straight up, and this is an old line going back to the 19th century, he said the family is important because it helps Buffett, the worker, and those dependent on him from the ravages of the free market. This is how they understand it. So when you talk about the destruction, the attack on the administrative state and the welfare state, It's because their vision is to replace the welfare state with the family, Mm. to replace the bureaucracy with the church Mm -hmm. or charity, right? So it's not like, it's not like their, um, their critique and their solution comes from nowhere. Mm -hmm. It comes directly from these sort of patriarchal, uh, conceptions of property and, and propriety, right? Because anyone that steps out, so trans rights activists, gay rights activists, Black Lives Matter, immigrant activists especially because we were all set to pass an immigrant rights bill in this country under George W. Bush and Obama. Who was it that blew it up? It was these forces that we're talking about here because they're the ones, not the big corporations like fucking IBM or whatever who are exploiting, hyper-exploiting immigrant workers and don't want them to have any rights so they can keep chewing them up of chewing them up and spitting them out it's these small business owners who rely on them mm-hmm. day in and day out in their precarious illegal status in order to hyper exploit them and they were the ones within the republican party that blew the whole thing up
1: but i mean primarily where these politics come from is trying to tap into that deep well of grievance yes and uh you know everyone in this country is pretty angry mm-hmm. and uh a lot of the anger goes towards the system in some way but when you look at January 6th, you see a certain kind of people who are angry for a, for a certain section of reasons. And primarily, these are white males. Again, we talked about their class before, but they were mobilized, like as you said, as shock troops, or another way to sort of think about them is stormtroopers, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this classical type of, uh, of person who's mobilized out of this uh, nationalistic concern. Um, historically, in Italy, the the squadristi, mm. who would you know, charge you know, they were they were charging the trenches in World War One, and then after the war, they're charging uh, striking workers, right? Right. Um, uh, you know, and some of them were anti fascist and communist too, but like the squadristi were the you know the mass movement base of what would become fascism. But importantly, they were before fascism; they existed, right. And you had the same thing in Germany with the uh, the stormtroopers. You mm-hmm. know the they they were the lower middle class white collar
0: mm-hmm. or blue collar workers who had been lumpenized.
1: One thing that's really terrifying about um, reading Reich's Mass Psychology of Fascism um, is uh, not all the the psychological diagrams, which are very <laughs> creepy and weird. But the first hundred pages, you really get this like excellent Marxist analysis of how fascism emerges from the lower middle class, especially the ideology and the neuroses around the family, Mm. around the patriarchal family breaking down. And uh, this is so important to like the rise of the Nazis because it wasn't like the Nazis came along and gave this ideology of grievance and, Nationalistic rebirth And like the need to fight for that They saw it They Mm -hmm. saw that there was Hundreds and hundreds Of like little nationalist organizations Following World War I People feeling like They had been stabbed in the back And betrayed And looking for someone to blame And the Jews were not like The first uh, place to go For a lot of these people A lot of them it was Finance A lot of it it was You know France Or Russia Or whatever Um, But importantly They understood That they could organize these veterans who were willing to fight into their shock troops, into their stormtroopers, And so I'm not sure that this has worked really that well in America. Mm. It's certainly being tried. There's Mm. like this massive effort to aestheticize the idea of being a white man with a gun who's willing to fight for his country, is willing to give his life for 1776 and whatever. Mm. And J6 was the attempt to see how far it could go. And it didn't work. And a lot of people in the state, including – The Trumpists were very shook by it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them saw what happened and was like, you know what? This could work next time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who tried to pull it off saw who was against them and saw some people who kind of like, you know, maybe didn't jump in but gave them a wink. Mm -hmm. And Clarence Thomas is one of these people. Oh, yeah. Uh, Apparently, when they were trying to take this case, to the Supreme Court, there was some there was some discussion on the court. Do we take this case? Over whether the voting machines are really run by the, you know, you yeah. know, the Italian elite or whatever, like it was, they're really Hugo Chavez's ghost pulling the levers <laughs> behind the scene, um, and some people on the Supreme Court were like, "Yeah, we, we should maybe we should consider this," and it's reasonable to believe that that was Clarence Thomas, yeah, um, and. Whose wife sure was part of the
0: of the sort mm-hmm. of legal behind the scenes attempted insurrection.
1: Right. And there are people in the White House, there's people in the military, there's people in the corporate state, you know. Nothing that we can really prove. You gotta know that the people who are trying to pull this off were testing the waters, saw that they had some support. And more importantly, since then, people like Lindsey Graham, you know, Republicans who were immediately like Horrified by it, and had to apologize, and had to say Trump's done. Yeah, have walked it all back, all back. Yeah, and, it's become the mainstream now. Of and the and party. and now, and if they tried to pull it off again, I think everybody would know what they're going to do. And this is why we need Dark Brandon. Dark Brandon. I don't think we're going to get Dark Brandon. We need the rise of Dark Brandon. And and so this is why I I don't really like this discourse that like the J6 hearings are irrelevant and we should be talking about the gas prices and all that stuff. Like, yeah, in a way, it's true because it's irrelevant because the Democrats are not going to do anything. Right. But they really should. Because well, this was an attempt yeah. to kill them, to crush them, yeah. to take full power, and that attempt is still going on. They were able to to round up and arrest a, uh, a few hundred of these stormtroopers, these like yeah. you know street toughs. But the people who plotted it and the people who are plotting it again are free. It's it's worse than that though, because it's not just the plotters. I mean, I've been
0: reading. I read, you read new terms all the time, like legal terms. I'm not a fucking legal guy. I hate the courts. I think the whole thing's fucking bullshit. I hate the Constitution. Fuck it. Burn the whole thing to the ground. But, you know, you read the papers these days and you discover new terms like independent state legislative right. Uh, doctrine, right? Which is basically something being pushed forward now that apparently the 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 wingnut uh Papist Supreme Court is going to take up and take seriously where all this talk about you know the electors about uh what Giuliani was running around the country doing, trying to like. Basically, like obviate the votes of the voters and just have the state legislatures like slaters, make Trump president. There's there's cases coming through now that basically are going to make that real.
1: And look, like this is what the Constitution says. It's the literally, Constitution doesn't say nothing can- about the popular vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: it's like all this norm loving fucking Constitution, Constitution humping horseshit is like. Funny and tragic because what the liberal dead enders, what the dying vital center is doing is they're trying to defend a document that is very dubious when it comes to uh, actual democratic norms and democratic rights. And what they're going to end up do is doing, and it's hilarious to watch the the J6 hearings happen at the same time as the Supreme Court comes down with this atrocious anti-majoritarian uh, overthrow of Roe versus Wade with the Gen Six trials in a, in a real way they've disarmed themselves because like what would stop this this attack on women's reproductive rights would be of course liberals doing a Gen Six on the fucking Supreme <laughs> Court <laughs> or at least mm-hmm. trying one but you have like these geriatric fucking dead-enders in the Congress who are just, like, letting the judicial branch do this, like, 50-year project in order to, like, make this particular vision of, like, insane bourgeois democracy on steroids slash quasi-fascism a reality. They're just kind of letting them fuck around behind the Mm -hmm. scenes, try things out and play around or whatever. And meanwhile, we all sit here and we're waiting for Dark Brandon. We're waiting for Dark Brandon to come out of the eaves like, take Mark Meadows out behind the White House and just <laughs> execute him, you know? I mean, yeah, I, I don't even have a horse uh, in this race except that I want Dark Brandon to rise.
1: Yeah, they, they should bring out those gallows as evidence, you know? Yeah. It, it, people's exhibit uh, G <laughs> and... Uh, Oh, you know. Oh, you know. It turns out it works. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe we can get some use out of this. I'd love
0: end. I'd love to see um, uh, uh, Joe Biden um, all of a sudden. He like call my, uh, Mike Pence to the White House and have a big press conference on the on the Rose Garden and be like, Mike, I can't believe that the Jan. Six insurrectionaries were chanting, "Hang Mike." mike pence and they were doing it right next to this gallows we see right now and mike pence is like that's not appropriate mr president i don't know why you're making me stand next to these gallows and then dark brandon arises grabs mike pence puts the noose around his neck and just pulls down and that's the kind of shit that 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 needs to happen if they want to protect
1: their precious bourgeois democracy but dark brandon is nowhere to be seen i mean we're joking but like look The they the Republicans have made massive massive power grabs over the last twenty two years, mm-hmm. and it got to the point where uh, a, a a mob that was organized with the Republican Party and continues to organize with the Republican Party tried to stop the peaceful transfer <laughs> of power. Yeah, and so it is not stupid or silly that the Democrats are having a hearing about this or a a kangaroo court or whatever you want to call it. It is absolutely necessary that they do it. And more importantly, it's absolutely necessary that they say what's going on. They sure. say that the Republicans have taken too much. They've taken the Supreme Court. They took the presidency in 2000. They're going to try to take it again. They're going to try to make us the permanent minority party in a country yeah. where we have more voters. And it ends now, and it ends with us arresting everyone who supported this yeah. for sedition. <laughs> right, And if they don't do that, they're just saying – you know what? It's okay that we're going to be the permanent minority party. Yeah. That's fine. Or, or they're saying, depending on how
0: things go, go ahead and put the noose around our necks. So everything is at stake, and
1: yeah. um, I think we all know which way it's going to go. Um, and so the question, of course, is it becomes, what do we do? Where's the people? You know, the all all the progress of sixty eight that uh, you know they're they're rolling back now. Um, this uh, revanchist counter revolution, it's really targeting. Feminism, civil rights, um, LGBTQ rights, all this stuff. Like they're they're not they're not trying to make the economy smaller and more rational and built, built on the family. That's bullshit. And it's all in. They are trying contradiction
0: to, to the American
1: Empire. Too. They are trying to make. Uh, they are trying to take that social movement and say, "You won back then, but you're not going to win today." And the the social forces don't exist to fight back. They don't. It's like in fucking Russia when you had a
0: constituent assembly and you were trying to find the good bourgeoisie to help you create bourgeois democracy, and they were nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Like, how are we supposed to have a bourgeois revolution? Where's the (laughs) bourgeoisie? Somebody find them. Oh, God, we haven't industrialized enough. Oh, my God. Commercial capital is not united with industrial capital. Where's our bourgeois revolution? And
1: in a way... J6 was kind of like the, the July days. Uh, or it's like
0: the, the, uh, well, the Putsch in 1921 where mm-hmm. uh, German industrialists like that section of capital tried to overthrow the Weimar Republic and just barely got stopped by a general strike by the working class. The same working class that had been put down by the Social Democrats with the same Freikorps, mm. which would eventually you know, put down the, the 23 revolution and also end up becoming the shock troops of the Nazis. So it's like liberals and social democrats over and over and over again being unable to take the sort of steps even to defend the system on its own terms. mm -hmm. And this is what we're seeing right now. We're not seeing a bourgeoisie, like a a left side of the bourgeoisie, willing to take steps enough to even defend its own sort of like half of political economy within this
1: country. And for a lot of people in this country, that's not news. It's not news that... Obama or Biden or the Democrats are not going to help them out. It's not news that Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned. They actually didn't have access to abortion a long time ago. They actually didn't have uh, the comfort of walking around, however they want to dress right. or however they want to present. For a lot of people in this country, they they have had to adopt to a situation that we don't have in you know in uh, in Bushwick Brooklyn no, for example, or California, or right. even Jackson Mississippi. And so, pe- uh, working class people. Have come up with their own methods of dealing with these problems. They have figured out how to have abortions in, in places where there's no clinics where it's not legal. They have figured out how to have gay sex in, in places where it is not. You can't just openly go to a gay bar, that sort of thing. And the fact that we no longer have the social forces behind those movements that we had in the the 60s and 70s, in a way, it's distressing. In another way, it just it just indicates that the proletariat. Saw the limits of those politics. They saw where it was headed. They saw will capital on the horizon. Mm. A lot of people knew this in the late 60s. Like revolutionaries they talked about it, yeah. right? They, uh, I think it was uh, Ed Sanders on a uh, what was that show with a uh, with Buckley? It was a firing line. Firing line. He yeah. he said, I don't think we're going to win the, the revolution, but the hippies and the counterculture are going to create this command generation that is. A lot more progressive and believes in equality and believes in treating people with justice and believes in legalizing weed. And so, you know, people saw what was coming, that this was not going to be, you know, socialist America, mm-hmm. but maybe it would be like a fair, democratic America. And, you know, you could argue you, you saw that for a little bit in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um and now And now that's over, because if you want to keep that, you have to fight for it, especially as capitalism degrades. Yeah, and so the question is, how are people going to fight today? And the only vision I have seen in the last 10 years is Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd uprising, where millions of people emerge all at once to fight or at least to stand in solidarity with the people that are fighting, and so I think this is what we can expect. And also, you know, in those cases, and, and liberals are saying, like, well, you know, the the riot is preparing militias to, like, murder everybody who, who does this. That's not exactly what we saw during the uprising. No. We saw the police falling back. We saw the Boogaloo Boys. You know, they had, you know, a few instances where they did something. But mostly they were nowhere to be found. Yeah. We saw the Proud Boys running from the streets. Right. You know, they only came back when the streets were clear. We have the numbers, basically. Right. For the most part, the proletariat and the working class people understand that that j6 shit although they a lot of people think it's cool that they like they went after the federal government they understand that's not those are more they look more like our boss than right than the people that we trust and want to fight with
0: yeah those forces are out there and i think there's another force too and i've been thinking a lot about the last like god how many years it been since bernie came out of the woodwork seven years right since that first run since you know aoc was elected you had the squad or whatever um and this is maybe a cynical take, but I I think it's the reality, is that in order for liberalism to defend itself um, with this sort of like geriatric old uh, ruling class fraction that exists right now in Congress and a capitalist class unwilling to take, uh, the left wing of capital anyway, unwilling to take serious steps in order to even like ensure its own reproduction under the law, uh, what you're going to start seeing is something called socialism that's going to try to take the place of what liberalism promised up until like through the 1990s, up until like uh, 2008, maybe right. Something that tries to revive um, the sort of vital center by doing the job that the old boomer Democrats couldn't do. And it's going to call itself maybe socialism. It's going to call itself maybe democratic socialism. It's going to continue to try to fight in the trenches of the democratic party it's going to attempt to continue to win power on a local level and it's probably going to have some victories because if the liberals aren't going to fight for themselves, then something needs to appear from the outside in order to to try to make these sort of formal freedoms um, a reality. So I think that like a section of the sort of declining middle class, you know, white, white collar cohort is going to become something called socialism that ends up going in this sort of electoral direction to try to keep alive a sort of a dream, you know, that you saw going back to the 1960s and the 1970s. But I think we have evidence now, you know, all, seven years later or so that the working class isn't really interested much in that either, mm-hmm. that, that, that politics does appeal to millions upon millions of people. And that in fact, it's not that uh, working class people, proletarians aren't interested in it per se. If you pull these ideas like universal health care or like, um, you know, Equal Rights Amendment, you know, abortion rights. They're all up there in like sixties, seventies, you know, eighties in some instances. It's just that for for very real world historical reasons there is there is no trust whatsoever that this particular political system can actually follow through with those things. For yeah, all because the, people have a memory. They have a memory have of all the promises yeah.
1: of everything that the Democrats have always and they told just them saw, to do. They just
0: voted for the Democrats for fifty years to mm-hmm. protect Roe versus Wade, and look what right, they just right. got. And they won't even lift a fucking finger to do anything. I mean,
1: that's that's a really important, I think, turning point uh, of delegitimization of the electoral system in general. Because for years, you know if an anarchist was being annoying and being like, oh, you're going to vote? Why are you going to vote? Someone could say, and they would be right. They would say, well, I'm sorry, but I believe in a woman's right to choose. And if we don't vote for Democrats, then we are going to lose that right. And you can say whatever you want about the Democrats, but I'm going to be a single issue voter on this issue because I care about who's on the Supreme Court. And you can't make that argument anymore. You can't do it. They're going to try to have you make that argument. They're going to say like, well, if we don't get Brandon in for another four <laughs> years, then it's gonna be seven to two. Right. And yeah. how would you like that? How would you like that? Um, yeah. and so they're gonna try to make that argument, but it's it's a much it was it's an argument that made a lot more sense before Merrick Garland not being put on the court. For sure. That's gonna make millions of people just not able to defend. Democracy anymore?
0: Yeah, yeah, Just and then it's not realistic anymore. It's not realistic. I mean, it was it was realistic to do a kind of regard rear guard defense of these sort of fundamental rights. Now, yeah, I mean, it's not. Let's not make this out like this is a happy time. Of course, this is a fucking tragic time that we live in things are happening really fast fuck we haven't even talked about the war that's now in like its fourth month or whatever over there and the supply chain breakdown inflation whatever all these kind of chickens are coming home to roost right now and a lot of the sort of conceptions that people have about what's possible and what's coming down the pipe are changing really fucking fast i think it's especially jarring um for people who sort of like just took for granted these particular things and were true defenders of the system now to see in like such an anti-majoritarian fa- uh, fashion these things happening um so what do we do at this point i mean you're right like the the social force uh that was um the black lives matter protests i mean that that was a a, a mass movement right for a while also open to being uh co-opted by woke capital Um, We'll see if those mass protests two years ago were a trial run for something or if they were, you know, uh, very uh, conjunctural in terms of the pandemic happening and then just this spate of just murder after murder after murder um, of of uh, black people in this country. I think. I don't know. This goes back to maybe we'll talk about on the bonus the Sublation Magazine event. <laughs> maybe we should do that because I thought that uh, that that event on free speech uh, that I was invited to talk to uh, and uh, Norman Finkelstein was at and Chris Cuthron and whatever was really interesting. But I would say, and this is by way of actual invitation, because people might have heard a few weeks ago I was talking about getting a new project off the ground, um, started moving in that direction. I beseech you, friends, listeners, whether you're patrons or not, uh, July 10th at 3 p.m., <laughs> going to have a meeting. You know, you're not a good Marxist unless you're prepared to go to a meeting at 3 o'clock on a Sunday. But um, I, I wanted to get a bunch of people together and kind of bounce some of the ideas that I have around. Because when we talk about the working class in the abstract, you know, we can read all the volumes of capital, the Grundrisse, you read labor history or whatever. um, We need to put some sort of like concrete um, muscle on that skeleton of how we understand it. So I want to talk with people about what I see as the limitations of um, uh, organized working class power in this country and unionisms, uh, unionisms, unionism. Uh, Also talk about what could actually be done at this moment in order to bring people who have thus far been sort of alienated from the left in general. Um, and I'm specifically thinking about rank and file within unions. I'm thinking of workers in transport, uh, workers in logistics, workers in industry, uh, longshore workers, uh, construction and things of that sort. Trying to think about ways in which we can make working class militancy in this country organized in a thing again, um, outside of the sort of structures uh, of American uh, politics and the economy as they exist right now. So I want to get everybody together because I have some proposals for that. So I'll put out another little thing, like a short little audio thing on Friday of next week inviting you uh, to come to this little... Um, wait, wait,
1: is, is this going to be like a stream? or you on, it? Discord, oh, okay. on Discord. Oh, okay. Oh, great. Yeah, 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 That's a good
0: idea. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. Um, I'll, I, I will. I'll do like a little like um, short audio post that invites people. You don't have to be a patron. I don't want to just... You don't just, have to be a Mets fan. You don't have to be a Mets fan. But if you do want to come to the ball game with us you uh, can't be week, a
1: yankees fan
0: yeah that's impossible you can't do it damn well in that case uh is it finished
1: it's finished stay tuned for the bonus yeah. where we talk about uh seeing norman finkelstein at the beach <laughs> yes and to listen to that and to be on our discord go to patreon.com slash the oh and i also want to say that i do have postcards left um, not just not enough for everybody so if you want a postcard just message me on Patreon or on Discord with your mailing address and I will send you a postcard and see you uh, on the fun half uh, the fun in the parrot half. room around the corner out in the streets